everybody. Welcome to episode 11 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host here, Stephen Lewis. What's up, Stephen? How are you? Doing well, man. We're at our house again. Your house. Yeah. Not yeah. our house. Yeah, that's true. We don't live together. That no. would be a little weird. A little bit of bromance. Because I'm, I'm a married man, happily married. So um, yeah, we're here. And, and that that silly Ikea photo behind you or canvas that you made fun of will soon be replaced. But we're in kind of a trophy room of sorts, are we not? We are. I'm a little intimidated. Yeah. it's I, I, I have all my wins sitting right above you right now. I have more. <laughs> but I'm sure you have a lot in boxes still. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I'll say. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think I put all of them out there. It might be even fudging a few that are gr- more gracious than, than I guess I'm being a little more gracious to myself than I should. But. Oh, I just have more n- number plates. I don't have more trophies. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah. More, uh, more blue ribbons. Lots of participation trophies. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're listening to this for the first time, you can go to mtbpodcast.com and you can check out all the latest episodes. We're even going to be having, soon enough, we're going to be having some written content that's going to be really good up there, so you'll be able to check that out. Um, Yeah, it'll be a good place for you to go to get some good information. So check that out, and you can share the podcast from there. You can review it uh, on iTunes or anywhere else that you're listening to this right now. You can do so on the Google Play Store, on SoundCloud, anywhere else like that, or you can leave comments on SoundCloud. But check us out, leave reviews, and please share the podcast. We enjoy that thoroughly because uh, it helps us grow because this is pretty darn new but it's growing fast yes so, it is it's awesome stuff and make sure you check us out on facebook at mtb podcast and instagram at, at mtb podcast yes sir and you can find us there and we'll actually post something this week it, i was i was not doing that this week i was so busy jonathan so. you were slacking this entire week yeah, I did nothing all week. I was going to post something. I just didn't want to get in trouble by the FCC. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know me. Yeah. I get bleeped out everywhere. That happens. Um, now, in all honesty, Trainer Road HQ, like we've talked about before, it uh, we just moved into our brand new building yeah. uh, that we bought and we've been renovating for a long time. And it's still not fully complete, but it's awesome. So, like, really nice. So... Um, but anyways, that's why things have been a little more busy than usual, uh, that and work's been, been nuts. So, but let's get straight into things and let's start off with the news. News team, assemble! Okay. First item, Steven, I shared, you take this one. I love this one. (laughs) This is pretty funny. So I found on, uh, if you follow Lance Armstrong on Instagram, he posted, which is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Yep. Um, he posted something the other day, and I'm going to share it with you guys. It's a package with U.S. postage on it, and he was shipping it, you know, from somewhere to somewhere else. And his mail person was somebody was shipping something to him. Oh, someone was shipping. Oh, I see. Yep. Okay. So, it, bottom line is, a uh, postal carrier, the mail carrier, writes a note on this and says on the package and says this package requires an additional $1.09 if you will please leave it in the mailbox <laughs> <laughs> so uh do so you think that- this person knew about the mil- you know the multi-million dollar lawsuit that they have against him right now i don't know but i find so it- that's a bold move that's a very bold move but <laughs> i just find it funny because lance posts this picture of it with the note the package with the note on it and he actually tags the U.S. Postal Service in this. It says that moment when you realize that the U.S. Postal Service wants $100 million plus $1.09 <laughs> from you. <laughs> uh, 
I just thought that was funny, so I had to share that with you. This is awesome. I enjoyed it. It was good. Um, I, I'm a fan of Lance. Uh, I like what he does, and I'm sure there's some people that might be yelling at their at their radio or headphones or phone, whatever else they're listening to right now, but... Uh, I enjoy, uh, I, I enjoy the, the stories that that guy brings out, whether yeah. it's through his podcast or through his own exploits, he's always been a, an entertainer. So like you said, good people do bad things. It yep. happens. Happens. We move on. Yeah, exactly. And, and speaking of moving on, he raced at, uh, the Epic rides, which by the way, Epic rides, uh, you should look them up and you should sign up for the nearest event by you. I'm yes. already signed up for the Carson city off road. I'm already signed to work it. Sweet. It's going to be fun. Cause I'm a cripple. Those they're the best events. We're not sponsored by them at all. It's just no. because we love their race. Todd Sadow and everybody, they just do such a great job of putting these events together and making it fun for spectators and racers and the volunteers. Yep. And it's just a great group of events. I mean, they just do such good work. Yep. And they just had the 24 hours in old Pueblo, which is, uh, an endurance race, obviously 24 hours. And it goes from noon on Saturday to noon on Sunday. And Lance, George Hancappy, uh, Christian Vandeveld and Dylan Casey, all ex, uh, us postal guys, actually. Yeah. Uh, they all went down there, formed a team in their race and they got third place, which is so pretty So they bad. hauled the mail. If they you did. Will. Yeah. And now they didn't get third place overall, but they got third pl- place in men. And I think a team of four. Okay. So, um, pretty darn good job. Yeah. Uh, that might've even been third place overall. I'm not sure, but usually uh, four person teams are pretty high up and I mean, yeah, that's yeah. your solos aren't getting overalls. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, pretty cool to see, uh, next bit of news, uh, the Enduro world series, also known as EWS. If you're wondering if you've heard that acronym, they got a TV deal. Yes, they did. That's pretty cool. Now, but before we get too excited, I genuinely think that we're really lucky to have all the covers that we've had on pink bike. Yes. And, um, I think a lot of people, I do not understand why anybody would, would bag on Red Bull TV. It's so good. I know they spend a lot of money to bring you content. If they didn't, who would? Nobody would. Right. And so like, I am so grateful for Red Bull TV, but, um, they don't cover this quite as much as like the actually EWS puts out these really good reviews every week. Um, and, uh, Richie Cunningham, I believe has been the, the host and it's been really good. Um, but now they've got, um, a TV deal that they've signed, which is pretty cool to see. I think it's gonna, I don't think this is going to be like any type of a hockey stick moment where suddenly kids down the street are getting into enduro because they saw it on TV. Cause I don't think it's actually going to be seen by that many people. Yeah. I'm, I'm hesitant, you know, I guess I wouldn't say hesitant, but I'm curious to see what North America's, uh, feed is going to be on that. Who's going to pick it up, you know, cause the, the corporation that's going to be doing it, you know, they're European based. Yeah. If I, and so I think it's really geared towards Europe. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Um, Rick McLaughlin and then Tracy Mosley, they're going to be the presenters. Okay. Which would be cool. I've never thought of Tracy Mosley as a presenter. Um, she's always been very candid in her interviews, but, um, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see. I think that if as long as she is, as Rick McLaughlin, this guy, as long as he can effectively kind of, you know, throw color. So then she can be the one that's actually throwing in all the, you know, she's the analyzer and she's throwing in all that information. I think it'd be a cool pairing. So no, absolutely cool to see. Um, regardless, you should check it out on whatever you're watching. Um, you should always check out, uh, EWS. You can check it out online too. Uh, the next bit of news, rock shocks. This falls in line with what we'll talk about later on when we get into the business, uh, 
but Rockshaw's released an update to their Super Deluxe Air Shocks and also a Super Deluxe Coil Shock. Which is cool. Yeah. I think they're trying to take a little bit of a bite at the DHX2 mm-hmm. and um, DVO's coil and DB in my coil and the Push 11.6. But the problem is that I still don't think that the, <clears throat> the adjustability in the Super Deluxe is still not what the others are it's more in line with floatex so if there was like a dhx coil like the olden days yeah it would be more in line with that but i do like it i think it's going to be a good thing you know rock yep. shocks has been doing a re- lot of really good stuff with their shocks for uh damping and valving yeah 26 might be dead but coil is not dead no there's no. a reason that i put it on the five five yep coil absolutely has a place and we'll get into that a little later um, but now let's transition from the news over to the questions. Question. It's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. And the first question is going to be from Alex. He says, love the show, guys. I've always been a fan of Yeti bikes with a lack of water bottle mounts inside the frame has been a big turnoff for me. So if you're counting, that's one opportunity to drink right there. Uh, we've already mentioned Yeti once. <laughs> but uh, he says, how do you guys deal with this? Do you wear camelbacks or mount your bottle on the bottom of the down tube? Neither of these options is ideal to me, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Alex. Go ahead, Stephen. I I put a bottle on the bottom to, on the down tube. We we don't yeah. live where there's cow poop and horse poop. So. I was just gonna say that if you live in an area where there's like a, you're riding through a lot of crap, like literal crap, then yeah, I'd probably reconsider. Yeah, having but one down there. I still get away with my fabric bottle cage and cageless mount, and so sweet. And I just use that, and it works perfectly fine. I blow the tip out, you know, before I take a swig, and you know what? I ingest a lot more dirt riding on dusty trails than oh, yeah. the cap is ever going to have in it. Yep. Yeah, and, and one thing too, the the fabric bottles are really kind of a good application for a down tube mounted underside down yeah, tube mount because, because there's no actual cage. Yeah, and you're also yes, exactly <clears throat> gets the cage out of the way, um, but you're also so rarely going to just pull a water bottle out from beneath the down tube while you're riding. Yeah, rarely. It's like a stopping bottle. And that's the cool part about the fabric bottles, uh, the cageless design, the little, um, the little, I guess, I don't know if you'd call them, they mount to the bosses. They're little, like they're shaped like a T and you, when you thread those in, they're plastic and they're actually intelligently designed to flare out as you tighten them more. Yep. So let's say that you want your bottle to be easy to pull off. And by the way, they don't just come flying off no, uh, like don't. you might I've think. never had one fall off. Never have either. Um, but if you wanted it to really be secure, you just tighten it down a little more. It yep. flares it out, so then it grips even tighter. Yep. So it's a really cool system. As far as camelbacks go, sometimes I will use a camelback if it's like a really long day yeah. or if I have to carry things. Yep. Um, my, I absolutely hate wearing backpacks. Uh, throws off my throws off the weight distribution. Just makes it it's 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 not good. I don't like it. But there's one bag that I've used that I don't mind, and that's from Liat. I don't. I'm not a particular fan of their braces, but I do like this bag that they have. Okay. Um. It's let me. I should. I need to find the exact name here. Um. But the thing about the this bag is that it has like an attachment that's almost like an X across your chest with a buckle. Like it doesn't have straps, then with like a chest strap and then a waist strap. Okay. It's a really small bag. Um, and it's actually like, it just kind of sits more like on your shoulders and, and like 
upper back instead of going down. Okay. It's a small bag. Um, if you look it up, you can find it in a lot of places. They sell it that goes with their Liat as like a hands-free hydration kit. Um, another name for the one I use is the H1. I think they've changed it though, but the H1 is what I have. And basically what it does is it has like kind of a, um, a cross or the H1 actually is the new version. I have an older one. I can't find it. But anyways, it clips in front with a buckle and it almost looks like a, a harness more than like backpack straps. Okay. And it really fits well and it doesn't slosh around on your back. Okay. The only thing I would say to that is get rid of the Camelback res- or the, of the Liat Reservoir because it tastes like terrible plastic and just get a Camelback one that fits in there because those ones are always better. So, and I use something like an Octane LR. I I use the Camelback, the the lumbar okay. ones to get that lower center of gravity, and they seem to not affect me as much. Um, the fanny pack? No, 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 no. It's an actual full Camelback, but it uses the lumbar style reservoir so that the water weight stays lower on your Smart. hips. Um, so, like the Octane LR, or I believe um, my big one is called the Voltage LR. I think. I think so. Um, but. Yeah, so I don't remember which one it's called, but the Charge LR, I think. Mm. I think that's what it's called. The electricity thing. No, it's not the Charge LR. Who knows? It, it's they little, change every year. Yeah, they so. constantly change their names. But yeah, I, I think that the key thing to look for in a Camelback is something that holds close to you and uh, doesn't slosh around a whole lot, too. I think a lot of people think, well, why would I get a small reservoir when I can get a big one? You, If you have a bag that'll hold that reservoir tight to you, that's fine, but... If you have a bag that doesn't, that's going to be so annoying to have all that weight sloshing around. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Sometimes smaller is better. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, he says, kudos, great podcast. I'm a reforming roadie that raced cyclocross for the first time last season and had a great time. Some of the people I met during cyclocross have gotten me interested in mountain biking. Cyclocross and its culture may be a gateway drug to mountain biking. I think it is. I agree. Yep, it is. Uh, he says, I can't give up my Lycra ways yet, so I'm interested in racing XC. I'm 40 years old, 5'10". I weigh around 175 pounds, and with my current FTP, it puts me to about 3.5 watts per kilogram. I realize that may have sounded like gibberish to everybody. FTP means your functional threshold power. It's basically just your lactate threshold in terms of power. Um, so more or less the pace that you could hold for an hour. Uh, it's that point at which you feel like your muscles are starting to load up. And if you pushed any more, you would get into that spot where you're just getting too fatigued to continue. Yeah. Um, it's not like an all out sprint at all. It's just right there at that threshold. So that's what FTP is. And then when I said power to weight ratio, or you may have heard it as watt KG, um, that's people breaking down the most precise way to compare you to anybody else on a bike. Because it basically comes down to power and weight and aerodynamics. Yeah. But how many watts per kilogram of body weight can you functionally put out for an hour? Exactly. That's what it's saying. Yeah, great explanation. Um, so that's exactly, so that's a good way. If you ever hear people talk about that, and it makes sense if Jason's coming from the roadie side of things, because they really, uh, we, we fixate on that, because it's the best way to uh, like structure your training, if you know that. Yeah. But if you ever hear that, that's what they're talking about. Um, if somebody is pretty fast, they're probably around 3.5 and up. Um, if somebody is exceptionally fast, they're going to be above four, uh, to 4.5 and, and Tour de France racers are five plus. Yeah. Well, they're going to be 5.5, six yeah. plus. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and for a point of reference and because I, and people are going to think that I'm go ahead, trying brag. to brag, brag, here. go ahead. It's not that great. Um, but I'm right now I'm at like 4.7, 4.6, but, uh, I need to be at five. 
uh, to meet my goals for race season. So I'm at zero right now with your so knee, thank you, you know. with my knee. Anyways, let's continue. Um, small detour, but I hope that explained a, a somewhat complicated thing for people. So, um, all right. He says, I'm looking to get my first bike. I'm using a friend's Titus racer X 26 or dual suspension. That thing's old. It's very old, but he says he's having fun on it. <clears throat> that's what it's for. Yep. That's all that matters. It has two wheels. So we're yep. good. Exactly. He says, um, I do want to get a 29er. I live in North central Texas and the courses here are super rocky and rough. I was just looking at full suspension bikes, but some of the XC ra- racers are recommending hardtails, which by the way is really common. XC racing, especially in terms of mountain biking, is the closest to roadies in many ways. But one of the ways that can be pretty detrimental is it gets hung up a little more on tradition than enduro, trail, downhill, anything else. So, and and hardtails, while they are they are much better now than they used to be, especially if you're riding terrain like he is. I don't think it's a good choice. It's still hard. Yep, he says the bike shop seems to like uh, seems like they are pushing full suspension. I'm looking at mid-range carbons for full suspension, a Yeti ASR, uh, Pivot 429SL, Giant Anthem X, and Specialized Epic are supported by the local bike shops. Hardtail-wise, I really just looked at the Epic Hardtail and read about the Can- uh, Cannondale FSI Carbon 2. Uh, just so many choices, not that much time to try everything out. Uh, any information or suggestions would be helpful. Thanks so much. Racing cross-country, knowing what the trails like are, are like in North Texas, um, I'm going to tell him to go to Cannondale, but I'm going to tell him to go to the, the scalpel. The new scalpel with its slacker head tube angle and its XXC design mm. is designed for exactly this. Yep. That's where I'd tell him to go. He's just going to have to be okay with riding a lefty. Yeah. That's the only thing. Yeah. And if you aren't okay with riding a lefty uh, out of the bikes that you selected there, I, of course, can't recommend my ASR highly enough, especially for anything that might be pushing the boundaries of where traditional XC racing might go. Very true. Uh, it's very good with that. The pivot 429 is a good bike, uh, for this type of stuff. And like, because it's going to be smooth, it's going to soak up a lot of the bumps that said, uh, it's, it doesn't, you're going to be putting that thing in and out of your climb mode a lot. Yes, exactly. Punchy right. climbs. I feel like I, I've ridden one, uh, just once before. Uh, so granted this isn't like a long-term review, but I felt like I had a lot of loss through the, the suspension stroke, you know, when I would put a lot of power, like put power and force into the pedals, I would, I felt like I was losing some of the stroke. Yeah. It's a really plush bike. Um, but that's all I would say there. And same story with the giant Anthem X specialized Epic, uh, in my opinion, you are going to get jostled around and lose a lot of momentum yeah. in chunky stuff. Yes. Because the steeper head tube angle, the brain, everything else on that bike, um, a lot of the time will make it so that you're effectively not just riding a hardtail, but you're riding a fully rigid bike because it's, it has a brain up front and back. Yeah. And the brain works. It doesn't work how I think most people think it should work, but it works. It works how it works. Like, and I, I hope when that makes it works. sense. Yeah. It just does its thing. Yeah. And it does that thing well, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not like the, the brain part is the marketing term, right? Like it doesn't. It's an inertia valve. Exactly right. It's not figuring out what it needs to do and then doing it. It's, it's, it's using gravity. Yeah. It's using 9.8 meters per second squared. Yes. Yeah, so that was nerd stuff. That right was there. nerd. Uh, so hopefully that gives you some, some idea. I would not go for a hardtail. No, um, I, I wouldn't that, go for a hardtail. Now, if you're in Southern California all day, yeah. a hardtail would be great because you guys have so much, you know, a lot of buff trail. Nor, NorCal too, a lot of the stuff makes sense. Um, a lot of the stuff out West. But back East especially, or if you're riding in the Midwest on rocky trails like this, 
Yeah. Yeah. If, if you have any, if you have a lot of bumps that are going to disrupt your momentum, you should always be looking at a way to, to maintain that inertia that you have going forward, maintain that, that kinetic energy, right? The momentum. So, yeah. Yep, exactly. So don't lose it by getting bounced around. Peter, I love the podcast and I've listened to each episode at least twice. They make a work day go much faster. Good to hear Peter. Thanks for listening, man. Uh, I found a 2014 specialized Epic comp carbon 29 at a local bike shop, which has never been sold. The bike lists for $4,000, but it's on sale for 30% off or $2,800. That's a pretty darn good deal. It's a decent deal. Yep. He says, I'm wondering if this is a good price considering that the bike is three years old. I have asked, but they are not willing to discount the bike more than 30%. Also, I'm wondering if there could be issues with the tires, shock, and fork considering the bike has been sitting on the showroom for three years. Steven, working at a bike shop, you could speak to this, I would assume. I'm going to say, honestly, no. There's no issues with your tires, with the suspension, with anything like that. There, there's no atrophy that's going to happen on the bike because the it's seals sitting. wouldn't dry out, the rubber no. wouldn't dry Because that's like the common worry, I would assume. Yeah, you're, right? you're in a climate-controlled area. It's, you know, the bike is just sitting there. And the warranty starts right now, not three years ago. Yeah. So even if it, you know, even if there was an issue, you're still getting your full warranty. My only problem is, at the end of every season... Our shop discounts bikes 30%. Yeah. And then they discount more to get rid of them when the next year's stuff shows up. Which your shop is Great Basin Bicycles. I'm just going to plug that. Awesome shop. So what I don't like is that these guys are discounting 30% on a three-year-old bike that they have 42% margins on. Yeah. So they're so they're actually still trying to profit off of this bike after three years instead of just trying to unload it and get rid of it. Yeah. I'm sure you can find closeouts for bikes cheaper than that on, you know, any of your online sources. I know that goes against, you know, our philosophy of supporting local bike shops, but that's not your local bike shop supporting you. In my opinion, I don't think 30% is really that great of a deal on that bike. Yeah. Now granted in 2014, that was the first year. I think that they updated the Epic to the newer style. So you're not going to have, so you're going to have a current bike in terms of chassis design or frame design, but you are not going to have a current bike in terms of componentry. No. So that's another thing to consider too. I mean, at 2,800 bucks, I mean, I think for just a little more, you could probably get a good XC bike. Granted, it may not have a carbon frame or you could probably still get one with a carbon frame pretty darn close to that price. Actually, yeah, you could. Yeah. I and mean, what's that build out? I see you're on your computer. What's it, what's the drivetrain on that? Um, it's got Shimano SLX. It looks like, um, on there. Let me double check that. Um, it's got, yeah, SLX, uh, an XT derailleur, uh, the Shadow Plus. It's got the just basic SRAM. I think it's like an S1200 uh, aluminum crank set. And then it's got the bottom line as far as the, the fork goes. It's It doesn't have the brain or anything else. It's the Reba RL29. It does have a through axle up front. Um, and I think it does have a through axle in the rear as well. But it's it's dated like that fork for example if you were to get a new bike you're going to get the new dampers that they have and yeah. it's going to be just a better bike overall so i don't see that being that great of a deal personally that's i wouldn't true. go for that that's a yeah once that's a good example of once you dig deeper it might not be that good of a deal yeah i think you can find a better one peter uh nikolai can you name a couple of um lights that i can use on a gopro mount i found it hard to find any uh Lots of brands. Um, the thing is, a lot of your GoPro mounts can adapt to the quarter 20 camera type mount. Yep. And a lot of lights accept that. Um, direct, light in motion. 
they sell their GoPro adapter with their lights. Um, some of them actually are included with them. Um, that's what I use. I have um, their Trail 850 uh, for my helmet. I have their, uh, what is it, the Seika 1500 Yep, for the handlebars. Yeah, and then they make good stuff, man. And then I have their uh, their urban. Uh, what is it? The the Viz one eighty. Oh yeah, yeah. I have that guy for the for the tail light if I do commute, and I love those lights. Those yeah. things are uh, those things are brighter than my headlights on my car. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I can I can ride at night as fast as I can in the daytime with those lights because the light spread is that good. And yeah. you do get what you pay for in optics. Optics is a very big physics thing, and when it comes to that, cheap lights may throw a lot of light in certain directions, but getting the light to be usable is a whole other story. story. I know lights are really expensive, Yeah, but you do, like you said, you do get what you pay for. Yeah. I have, um, which RIP, uh, jet lights. Yeah. I have jet lights and they used to be a company out of here in Reno. Um, no longer existing, but they are such good lights. They are. And they're still lasting fantastically, and they mount directly to a GoPro, uh, which is nice because I have a K-Edge mount uh, for my Garmin. And on the underside of that K-Edge, I can mount a Garmin mount, and it's just like a super clean solution. Yep. There's like no mounts on my bars, the no extra stuff. Yep. I just put it right on there, and then I have one for my helmet too, which yep. just, it's so easy. Yep. So, And as far as the budget lights go, um, Saigo Light in their Expillion series, they make some really good lights. I used to have their Expillion 850, and cool. that was a really good light um, for a single commuter type light. Yeah. But for mountain biking, you want to have over 2,000 lumens total, yes. honestly. So I like having 1,500 on the bars and 850, you know, movable on my helmet. Let's cover that really quick on lights. Um, so I, I think that it's, if you're going to have one light, mount it to your head. Is that correct? Would you say that? Yes, because you, you can see where you're looking. Yes, instead of mounting it to your bars, mount it to your head. If you're going to have two lights, bars, and head, don't try to mount it. I've seen people like try to mount it to like their fork and different things like that or on their frame down below. No, put it on your bars. Uh, bars and helmet, and uh, then the thing that I would recommend is running them if you have like variable intensity settings. Yes. Um, first of all, when you're climbing, turn it down so you can save battery life, and then when you're descending, turn it up. But I always like to run them at different settings of intensity because it stops things from going like flat light on me. Hot spotting. Exactly. Yeah. It keeps. It gives you some depth. Yeah. Still, you can still see some shadowing and everything else. Yep. So I usually run the one on my head brighter and the one on my bars less intense. That's exactly what I do. I'll run I'll run medium on my bars and high on the helmet. Yep. Um, but that also has to it also has to do with the optics of your light. How does it throw it's the true. light? How does it spread the light? Yep. You know, my helmet beam is more of a spot beam. So it gets further throw and hot spots where I'm looking whereas my handlebar mount is a very spread almost like a low beam on a car. Right. So it gives a better, you know, less intense, um, yeah. spotting effect. Yeah. But I typically turn my handlebar mount completely off when I'm climbing and I put my helmet on the lowest setting because let's face it, we're climbing at, you know, six, seven, eight miles an hour. Yep. Exactly. You don't need to see don't need it. 80 feet ahead of you. Yep. And you can go on, on my YouTube channel, just search Jonathan Lee. You can find it on there. I have a video of me riding at night in a really densely wooded area. So you can see what it's, you know, it's really like the effect of the light. Um, and I have a onboard video with my GoPro that, that shows that. And it's pretty cool uh, to see. I think that you'll see like what an ideal riding at night setup is. A lot of people have seen that and been like, how in the world does it look so bright? And it's yeah. just all in the angles that you have and everything else. So yep. 
Yep. Uh, and the other thing is getting, you were talking about the gimmick of putting your, your front light on the fork leg. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Yep. Because if there's any trail obstructions, you lose your lighting output. You want to get above the brush, above the rocks, and you want to be able to throw light down on the trail, not forward from the ground. Yes. It's that like a fog beam set up on a vehicle. That's, you know, you want to cut under everything. Yep. On bike lights, you don't want to do that. Agreed. Agreed. Roy, he says, I love the podcast. You guys are on to something great. Thanks, Roy. Uh, we, we think so. I have a Yeti SB6C. Drink again. People Yay, are, drink. People are losing it right now. Um, he says, how do I increase the range of a SRAM 1180? That's their 1042 tooth cassette. That's their 11 speed, by the way. Yes. Um, how do I um, increase the range on that cassette? Do I replace a 42 tooth sprocket with a 44 or 46 tooth? Do I replace my oval chain ring from 30 tooth to 32 or 34 tooth? Thanks. Well, the first thing is you're not going to increase your range by by um, going by changing your front chain ring. Going All you're going to do on the front chain ring is you're going to shift your range. Yep. So, and the other thing is, I know Wolf Tooth makes a replacement 44 and 46 tooth cog for the the uh, um, for the SRAM chain rings. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Because you're basically pulling a pinned aluminum chain ring yeah, off it's and scary. placing a pinned one back on. And so I don't like that. So what I would recommend personally is on your bike, being that it's an SB6, um, I think you can, with a 27.5, you can easily get away with a 32 tooth mm-hmm. or you can get away with a 34 oval. That way you get the, you know, you basically get the the hard pedaling part of a 32, but then you get the speed of a 36 or 34. Um, and I would put the E13 TRS plus or TRS race cassette on. They work with your, um, your XD driver on your, your rear wheel already, and it'll increase your range to either 400 and what is it? 490% or, you know, on the 944 yeah. or 946 goes 512. Yeah. So 946. Um, so you are, uh, you are extending your range there substantially. Yeah. That's going to give in you both directions. top end and better low end. Yeah. And one thing like Steven mentioned, you, if you change the front chain ring, you're just shifting things. You could go to a 30. You could even try to go to like a 28 in the front. If you wanted to, you could go really tiny on that chain ring up front. If you don't have any concern about losing top end speed. That's the one thing that you'll have to consider because I would assume if you're looking at going up in the back that your main concern is is dealing with you know running out of gears on a climb. Well, he also said he so. wants to go from a thirty to a thirty two or a thirty four. Hopefully, he's understanding that means he's shifting his speed range up. Yeah, that's one thing that I think a lot of people misunderstand. If you go bigger in the front, it's a harder gear. It's harder to pedal. If you go bigger in the back. It's easier to pedal. Yeah. They're inversed. Yes. So that's something that, that a lot of people, um, I think can, can get mixed up. So, um, so yeah, that's what I was, I mean, if you really want to go ham with it, get that E13 cassette, then try to find like a 28 and then you can really get down there or even leave with the 30. Yep. That's the thing with that 46 and a 30. That's a ridiculous crawl range. Yep. You've got a 39 overdrive. Yeah. That's over three to one. So that's actually still pretty good. Yeah. So give the guys at E13 a call. Tell them we sent you. They're awesome. Uh, all right, with that, let's get down to business. Oh, it's business time. It's business. It's business time. This is something that a lot of people have asked about, um, especially recently, but ever since really the podcast started, we're going to do a comprehensive guide to suspension designs. And I say comprehensive, perhaps it's really not comprehensive because 
Don't get mad because we aren't going over your obscure bike from five years ago. We aren't going to talk about how the suspension works on that. <laughs> but, but there is, and even beyond that, there's so many variants of so oh. many different suspension designs that we literally don't have time to cover it all. Yes. So we're going to try to hit the main ones. Yep. And we're going to try to get in depth and nerdy. So sorry for anybody who like, I, we don't want to talk over anybody's head, but this is going to get a little bit nerdy Yep. and we'll try will. to break it down as best as we can. Yes. So a few things to keep in mind before we get into this. Um, if you alter the position of a link uh, or of, of a, a, where your shock mounts on the bottom or on the top of the shock by even a, a handful of millimeters, it will change the way suspension behaves. So just because you see your shock um, being in line with the seat tube, so it's vertical, and it looks really similar to what's on a giant, but so you think it must be the same, don't think that. If you see a different suspension design from a different company, you may be able to recognize the similarity, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking that that means it must behave like your bike. Yes. That's something that we should get across that's pretty clear that needs to be understood from the from the beginning here. Yes. So um, let's uh, get into things first, and let's talk about... So we're going to talk about rear suspension designs, um, and then we'll talk about shocks a little bit, and then we're going to talk about specific bikes and how they, what design they have, what linkage design they have, and then what type of shock would be best for that type of linkage design. Yeah. Hopefully that breaks it down for you. So the first thing that I want to talk about is shock force and leverage ratio. So something that people, I think that you need to understand is when we're talking about these bikes, leverage ratio is something that's very important. And the leverage ratio refers to how much movement you, you have to have at the shock to get whatever type of movement you want in the back of the, at the back wheel, right? Wheel path movement divided by shock movement. Exactly. So if you, for example, and in most cases you'll see that, you know, uh, let's just throw out some arbitrary numbers, but it'll illustrate the, the, I guess the direction that we're going with this. If you have five millimeters of movement on your shock, it may bring something around 10 millimeters or maybe even up to 15 millimeters at the rear. So at, at 10 millimeters of wheel travel to five millimeters of shock travel, that's a two to one leverage ratio. Exactly right. Which is actually not too far off from what you see on a lot of bikes. Yes. Um, so that's something that's important to, to recognize that a linkage design is designed intentionally to do that uh, because they want to be efficient. They don't want to have just a gigantically massive and long shock um, that you're using there. Yeah. Uh, we can use a smaller shock, but we can still uh, clever in a clever manner get a more travel out of that shock. Yes. So that's what's going on there. Um, then I think that the other side of things is the shock force side of things and kind of separating the two. It's not just all about your leverage ratio, but it's also about the shock and how that interplays with your suspension design. Yes. So we're going to talk about a few different suspension designs, and we're going to talk about um, progressivity of those shocks, uh, or sorry, of the of that design. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to make clear is that we're not talking about that um, in the context of being mounted on the bike with a shock. We're just talking about that design, yes, and what it does in terms of progressivity. And the to understand shock force, what you're really looking at is the shock force relates to a linear nature, a progressive nature, or a regressive nature. So what that means is, if you look at all of your suspension designs, everything is based around circular paths. No suspension can physically rotate and not be making some sort of semicircle or arc path. So it's not, the rear wheel isn't moving straight up and down, 
it's moving most likely backwards a bit and up and then toward the frame yes. and up. As and it follows that path, it's an arc. And so through the leverage system or through the, the linkage system, what that does is that creates, you know, at the beginning of your travel, you may actually have a two to one ratio where you get five millimeters of wheel travel to, you know, 10 millimeters of wheel travel to five millimeters of shock travel. But later on in the suspension, as those arcs move around, the leverage ratio will change. And yes. that's what a progressive, you know, shock rate or shock force is dictated by. So let's cover three different, the three different <clears throat> possibilities you can have there. Yes. We have regressive, we have linear, and we have progressive. So let's start with regressive. What would that be like? Regressive means out of your initial sag, the shock travels faster compared to the wheel travel. So you have a higher leverage ratio in the beginning of shock travel, mm -hmm. and it transitions into more wheel path travel to less shock travel. Correct. So it regresses on your rate. It's a negative progression. Exactly. Now, linear it's pretty straightforward. We're talking about uh, the same relationship being maintained or something close to it yes. the whole way through. A lot of single pivot designs are going to be like this. Yes. Your your ASR is very is very close to a a linear. Yeah. Shot. Have I mentioned how much I love that bike? Yes, you have. Uh-huh. Okay. <clears throat> Should I mention yeah. it again? Sure. It's great. Okay. Okay, yeah. Moving on. Uh, progressive. Progressive means in the beginning you have an, an easy initial breakthrough. You have a lower leverage ratio and the leverage ratio increases as you go through wheel path travel and shock travel. So something that's good about progressive is if you are taking a big hit, uh, a progressive design will have greater resistance to bottoming out. Yes. Right? Whereas a, whereas a regressive, you look on the downhill world, like it's famous, everybody, the one thing everybody hates about the Da Vinci Wilson is the fact that it has a negative progressive rate. People bottom out that thing like crazy. You get that thing 90% of its travel dialed, and then it just seems to want to just blow through the last inch and a half of travel. So you better have some good bumpers on there. Yes. And when we're talking mm -hmm. about bumpers, those are little rubber guys that you'll see, especially on like coil shocks. And I guess... I mean, an air shock can't really, well, I guess it could have a bumper. Internally, they sometimes do, yeah. but typically you're relying on the limits of the travel. Yep, exactly. You're banging the shock out. Yep, uh, but on a coil shock, they'll actually have rubber down there. Every dirt bike you'll see has that uh, on the shock. My there. DHX2 has one on the on the air, the, the, the shaft, the rod assembly. Yep. And you can even change the density of those in some cases. Yep. So sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. But so that's what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the, the different things here. Now, a coil shock is linear. Yes. And it's not that the coil shock, the shock itself has nothing to do with it being linear. The coil is a single spring rate. So it creates a certain pound force of resistance, no matter if it's fully extended halfway or fully, you know, compressed. Yes. It's creating the same, uh, uh, force the whole time, which is kind of crazy to me that we don't have progressive spring rates we, in mountain on, biking it, or progressive springs. Forgive me. They yeah. don't have progressive springs. And the reason why is they can't be big enough. They can't actually physically design a sh uh, progressive rate spring small enough to handle the shock forces. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah Cause I, we, we have them in motocross. You have them in motocross. Yep. They have them in the off-road world and auto know. racing, yes. of course, yeah. everything else like that. Yeah. yeah. And you can even get some that, um, you know, they, they can design coils very cleverly with yes. that type of uh, stuff. But in the mountain biking world, the coil itself is linear. Yes. It's the same from bottom to bottom to top there. Yeah. Now, air is different. 
air is air shocks are progressive. Air is a compressible gas. Yes. So once again, we're not talking about the the linkage design now. We're talking about the actual shock side of things, right? Yes. So an air shock is progressive by nature. Yes. There are a couple of different things that you'll see, like we've talked about with Steven's bike. Um, we talked about him changing out his shock and everything else. He had a larger volume. It was the Float X2. What did you have on I there? had the standard Float X with the Evol, the extra volume negative chamber. Okay. So there are some, uh, f- like I'm thinking of like the Vivid Air, um, other, other shocks like that. Where they that. have the Debonair and the extra volume cans. Yep. Yes. You can get these, these shocks that actually have a larger volume to them. And that creates less less progression it makes a, a it tries to mimic more linear shock curves or spring curves um but they're still progressive it's just the more air volume you have the less progression you have as you dive that shock into travel and make the air canister smaller correct whereas with less air volume obviously you're going to compress it more on a ratio a compression ratio setup so that's where more volume creates more linearity, whereas less volume creates more progression. Yes, and you'll see a lot of people alter shocks like this with putting in spacers. Yes. That spacers isn't really a great term. It's more like fillers. Volume reduction spacers. Volume reduction spacers. That's, what that's a called. great way to say it. Yeah. Because that's um, really what you can do in that case is if you feel like you want more progressivity out of your shock. In other words, you want things to ramp up more. You want to have better bottoming resistance toward the end of that. Then you can put those spacers in there, and that'll really help. And sometimes that can even help shift things not just for bottoming resistance, but even earlier on it creates a better initial breakthrough having less air volume as well exactly so and that's it can, the beauty of it yeah and it's and we're saying that that you know that's a good thing but that's not once again this is the shock end of the equation and on the other side we have the the, the linkage design of the frame right and those two things need to meet up. They have so to meet up. We're not saying that a progressive design is of a, sh- a progressive shock is the best shock. No, because if you have a really progressive suspension design, then you want a less progressive shock. Correct. So there's, there, there's, yeah. You like need to decided. balance them out. Yes, you do. And that's the thing that I think that a lot of people misunderstand. Uh, they think that progressive is always good, which. If you're talking about the function of the geometry of the frame and the shock working together, you generally want something for most riding, for what people do, trail riding, enduro, that type of stuff. Yeah, uh, You want something that is more progressive in most cases because you want uh, more sensitivity in the beginning. You want to be able to soak up more bumps as you're riding over them, yep. um, small things, but then when you don't want to bottom out. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not necessarily the case across the board. For a lot of XC racing, for example, you might want something that's more linear because you want more support early on. Yeah. And then, you know, getting towards the bottoming outside of things, you're on a short travel bike, you're not going over huge drops all the time. And if you do clank your suspension, it's probably not because you're going off of a 20 foot drop. It might just be like a three or four foot drop, but it's okay. It's not the end of the world. You would still rather have more support early on. Exactly. So that's something I guess to to keep in mind. And then also with downhill, in a lot of cases, um, people will, you know, want a lot of suppleness early on because they want to maintain that traction as they're going over, you know, bumps and rocks and everything else. Which is why a lot of downhillers don't have air shocks. But the big thing with air shocks now is they're realizing that what people don't, I guess the average person doesn't understand is that an air shock is not just you pumping air into a chamber and creating what they call positive pressure. There is a balance and there is a second chamber 
that is what they call the negative chamber. Yep. And what that negative chamber does is it helps with initial break-in. So when you look at your, your float X with yep. that black, what they call the EVOL negative chamber can, yep. that is a bigger negative air chamber, and what it does is it creates a better small bump compliance and initial breakthrough that to breakthrough create point a, is a supple you know, uh, initiation of travel. Yeah. And that's that breakthrough point that you talked about is what's needed to get your suspension to move. Yes. And if you stop and think about it, you might actually find a contradiction that you're believing right now that if you were to put any weight on your bike and I mean, you know, dropping your hand on it or dropping a one pound weight or two pound weight or not dropping, I should say just placing it on your bike that the suspension would move. If you put a one pound weight on there, I bet it wouldn't move. No, it's not going to move. Uh, it's got a breakthrough point. It takes enough weight to kind of break things through and to actually, like you said, you've got that negative chamber, you've got that positive chamber, but it still takes a bit of force to actually make things work. Yes. So that's something to, to keep in mind. Yep. Um, so let's get into a few um, bikes. We'll talk about the suspension design that they have. And when we say suspension design, we're talking about the frame, linkage, those type of terms, um, how everything is laid out on the bike. And then we'll talk about what it does well, uh, what it doesn't do well. Uh, we'll talk about the progressivity of it. And then we'll talk about what type of shock you would want to pair with this. Yes. Um, so let's get into it. First one, Steven. So the Trek Slash uses the Trek's famous active breakpoint rocker type suspension. Yeah. Uses a vertical shock in the, uh, in, in the triangle, in the main triangle. Um, and it uses, it's really funny. A lot of people think that the, like say giants, Maestro link and Norco's, um, linkage system is very similar to the Trex. Which and Norco you, uses the split pivot. Yes. So it is very similar. The difference is on all of those other bikes, and Norco might be different now, but I know that even uh, Giant now, the bottom of their shocks is hard mounted to the front triangle of the frame. Yes. The top is mounted to the rocker link. Yep. On Trex, the entire thing is floating. Yes. The lower the, the chainstay linkage has its pivot point near the bottom bracket, that piece continues up and mounts the bottom of the shock. So the bottom of the, the, the whole shock actually floats inside yep. there. That actually creates less progression. Yep. And, and in that linkage it design, it, it creates less progression. So it's more linear. So it makes it more linear. So that right there is why treks like are just so plush of bikes to ride. Yep. The other thing is on the active brake point, the rear chainstay yep. to seat stay assembly at the rear axle is a pivot point. There's they a don't, hinge at the rear axle. It's not as if they're welded <clears throat> together in the back and it's one solid piece on that no, triangle. There's actually bearings in each piece and the yep. axle goes right through both of them and that is an actual pivot point in the suspension. What that allows Trek to do is it allows that uh, where the disc mounts, uh, yep. the, the caliper mounts on the seat stay. Yep. What that does is it basically makes it so there's no torque generated on that linkage so that it doesn't bind up the rear suspension when you put your brakes on. And that's a, I guess something that we should point out here, um, enemies of, of, or I should say things that inhibit the, the intended design of the suspension and how it's supposed to operate and travel through its stroke, um, pedaling and brake jack and brake jack. Those are your two main issues. Yeah. So pedal Bob and brake jack. Yes. When you brake, uh, it can do one of two things. It can make your suspension actually extend. So you sit higher in your travel and it locks the suspension up. 
Yeah, which is not great. And it also makes it harder to get traction when you're braking like that. Yes. And typically you try to tow a line between traction and compliance. So you so the most of these designs are figuring out where do we want to sit in between those two. On the far end of, you know, one side we have extreme brake jack, the other side we have extreme pedal bob. Where do we want to yeah. tow that line in between? And also on the other side with braking, you can also get designs that kind of make the bike sit lower into its stroke when you apply the brakes. Yep. Um, so it's, and it's all now that, that also it's while neither of those in an extreme scenario is ideal. It's not as if one of those in within moderation is a bad thing. And people counter for this, uh, brands counter that with it counter for this with suspension that they mate with that design on the frame. Um, so I guess the good thing that that track does it's good at isolating the pedaling and braking forces, right? Um, and it has a really nice progressive nature. It's 26% over the wheel path. Yep. So it goes from one rate, 26% higher through its travel is essentially what that's saying on progressivity. Yep. That is actually a really good curve. That's a that's a, a beautiful pedaling bike. Yep. It's a plush bike. Yeah. What does it not do well? Um well, what I don't like about the active break point is while the, the geometry alone is 26% progressive, it relies on valving to make it pedal better. And I yeah. don't like when that's what VPP does. VPP relies on Which the valving we'll get into the chalk. later. And so that's something that, you know, you're, you're talking, um, you usually run like a larger air volume um, or like a, even a, so less progressive. Yeah. To add a little bit more progression, or you can put a coil spring on an active brake point track, or, um, or I guess you know the other thing is that you're going to use like a, a middle of the row compression tune, right? Um, on something like that, but you're really when you go into climb mode, that's really where that bike pedals well. Everywhere else, it's going to be a pretty spongy feeling bike. Yeah, not terrible, right? But it's just not going to pedal as well until you put it in climb mode. It's not an inherently um, efficient climbing bike. Yep. Exactly. And with valving that can be, that can be addressed. Absolutely. And that's what Trek does. Yep. And that's with, and something key for us to mention here, while the design may be similar across different bikes, the geometry of these bikes will be different and there will be subtle differences in actually how this is laid out on each bike. So we're talking about the Trek slash here. Yes. And, but that may, would not be the case, for example, on the top fuel no. or anything else. It'll Very be different. different. They'll yeah. have different progressivity. It'll have everything else. Yeah. So because um, the rocker is a different length, the angles are different, the shock is a different stroke, they use a different compression and rebound tune. Yep. Everything is going to be very different from bike to bike. We're just kind of giving you a broad overview. Um, and I do have to say one thing about the Trek. I think their bikes have gotten better since they went away from the DRCV. Yeah, which valving. DRCV being? It's it's their Trek-specific valving that sh- that Fox is doing for them. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And, and once again, when we're talking about the progressivity of these, of these designs, we're talking about it sans shock, so to speak. We're talking about the actual design of the geometry, you know, the, of the frames, linkage system and everything else. Let's get into the specialized Enduro, a super popular bike. They use the FSR or future shock, uh, whatever the R is. Um, and they, it's, it's, a horse link or four bar uh, suspension design. You hear them mentioned it with both, I guess, in, in those different ways. So it's not a solid rear triangle, much like the Trek. There is a pivot point. But in this case, your pivot point is actually 
in line with the chainstay, uh, or I should say, just down the chainstay from that 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 yes. point where it's the in front of the rear axle meet below your seat stay. Exactly right, and it is slightly below, like you said, yes. which is a, which is a key <clears throat> point to it. Um, and that's what gives it kind of the four bars if you were to draw them out. Right. And, and the reason now, the reason that they put that linkage down there in front of the rear axle and slightly in front of where your brake caliper is, is that's their attempt to also work on eliminating brake jack. Yep. And then after that, it goes up the, you go up the seat stays. So we're working from the bottom bracket over it goes up the seat stays and then it connects to a linkage, uh, that has three different connection points. It connects to the, to the seat tube on the frame. Yep. And then it also, uh, connects to the, to a little, like, um, I guess, a there's an actual name for these, like, uh, the arm that connects to the bottom of the shock. Um, and then it pushes that shock. And in the case of the Enduro, it mounts to their little X wing thing. They call it. Yeah. Which is kind of nerdy. And then it has say. the little, the clevis. Yep. Exactly. To the shock. Yep. Exactly. Right. And <clears throat> so, um, with the Enduro, uh, one thing that it does well is it sits high in the stroke when you're pedaling. Uh, so it doesn't like squat down and get all spongy on you in that case, which is what they call they it's called anti-squat characteristics. Exactly. Um, it also maintains good traction when braking. That bike really does. Yes. Or I should say in most FSR designs do. They yeah. do a good job of that. However, what it's poor at, it does have more bob than many other designs, pedal bob. And we're talking about when you're pedaling, the bike will want to you'll be traveling through the stroke the, um, through the suspension travel with each pedal stroke and a firm say. enough pro pedal system will eliminate that Correct. or mitigate that to some extent. Correct. And something else that a lot of people do complain with, with the Enduro is, is a general lack of mid stroke support as yeah, well. It just feels really numb. Yep. It, yeah, it can. So like you don't get a lot of feedback if you push into the, into the, you know, if you're going into a berm and you pump and you push into that berm really hard, it just goes away. You can, you, you can lose a lot of that energy. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty linear design as evidence of what we're just talking about right there. That's what it would feel like. Yeah. It's pretty linear, only 10% progressivity. And, uh, if you're looking for a shock to pair to that one, a smaller or larger volume, uh, air one with high compression tune, which is what I said, you need a higher compression tune to combat your pedal bob exactly uh and that kind of covers the enduro once again uh it's we're not talking about which design is best because all of them are good at different things and we're kind of at the point now where pretty much every major brand they don't have bad they don't have bad performing bikes yeah nobody has a bike that's like oh god that's terrible exactly that doesn't exist anymore no it really doesn't unless it's like a walmart mongoose bike but if you're riding that rocket yeah you're just on a bike go have fun exactly the next one do I really have to talk about the Giant? <laughs> Do you want me to talk about it? I would like you to talk okay, about it. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> Giant Rain uh, uses the Maestro link, they, which is really just the DW link, um, just in a different configuration. The DW link lives in many different forms. It's a shapeshifter. Yeah, Dave um, Weagle. Yes, Dave Weagle is the one that designed that. Um, basically, the, the way that the Giant Rain works is, like you said earlier, Stephen, let's start at the bottom of the shock. Yes. The bottom of the shock is mounted solidly to the frame, right down at the junction by the bottom bracket. Yes. Right? And then it also, just outside of that, it's got a linkage that, that goes through. So the, a bolt goes through the shock, goes through the frame, and it also goes through a, a linkage there that curves around the base of the bottom bracket there and connects to the chain stays. Yes. So you have a linkage with two different points down there, right? And then 
the interesting thing though, is that there is no break in the chain stays to seat stays like you have on a Trek or a specialized, yeah. the chain stays and seat stays are solid through the back. It's one piece because you have that linkage way up there on the back side of the bottom bracket yep. going to the front side where the shock mount is. Yeah. You don't need another one. No, you don't. And then, and anytime you introduce another link like that, you introduce a flex point. Yes. Um, and you also introduce a possible failure point. And that bike already has 12 bearings, you know, all Dude, the mice have so 10 many. 12 bearings. It's got so many to put that system together. It's yeah, a lot more bearings than a pair of rollerblades. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, Even those five wheeled ones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Anyways, let's get off of rollerblades. Um, and then as you go up that connects into like a rocker arm, yeah. even though they don't usually call it a rocker arm, but it is, it's, it's the maestro link. Exactly. Yeah. The maestro link is how they brand it. Yeah. And that just has the, the seat stays go up, connect to it. It connects to the to the seat tube and then to the top of the shock. Yes. So it's not a full floating design like you have on the Trek. It looks very similar in a lot of ways, but it behaves uh, differently in a lot of ways. Um, one thing that it's good at is it does separate the braking and pedaling forces. It feels very plush when you're descending. Yes. It's kind of like the closest feeling design that I have ridden to a dirt bike in the sense that it just feels like you can just plow through things. Yes. You know, um, it doesn't really, and, and in most cases they design the rest of the bike kind of around that. That said, it's not a very stable bike. No, it, uh, you know, whenever I, on, on all giants, honestly, I've even ridden the Anthem, which is their smaller travel bike. And it is much better than the rain. The one we're talking about now at this, but, um, I, whenever things get slow, technical, balancey, anything else, I feel like I'm standing on a waterbed. Yeah. And that is one thing that it's a little, it's just a compromise. And once again, shocks are so much better these days that you can have valving that really stiffens things up and yeah. that helps. Um, but it doesn't have just the, the geometry design is not, doesn't provide a very stable pedaling platform. And there is a definite lack of that mid stroke support. Yeah. Um, that said, mm-hmm. The progressivity is 23%. So it is slightly linear to linear. It's not as linear as some designs. Um, and I think that shocks within the past few years have done a lot better job at, I guess, working for designs like this. So if you have like a smaller or larger volume air shock on this, you'll be good. Um, smaller one would once again give you more progression yeah. to made up with that more linear design that the bike has. And you'd want to get like a mid compression tune on this one too. Uh, if you get a high compression tune, it could be a little overkill uh, with this bike. Okay. So that's what I'd look for on that one. Uh, your bros rejoice. Next one, Santa Cruz Nomad. Bros are stoked right they now. They are. Yeah. Uh, so the VPP design is technically an offshoot of the DW Link again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a floating, completely solid rear triangle. So all the pivots are based off of the swing arm. There's yep. no linkage changes over from the chain stay to the seat stay, anything like that. So brake jacking is something that you don't typically have to worry about on a VPP bike. Yep. Um, and this can carry over to intense as well on their VPP bikes. Yes. I know they're they going over to the well. ECP setup, but still this is, you know, this'll go for those as well. VPP meaning virtual pivot, virtual point. pivot. Um, so your first pivot is usually just in front of the, the version t- one and two, put your first pivot behind the bottom bracket. Yep. Now they've moved that to where they, they run it like the maestro link where it's sitting far forward in front of, of it. the, of the bottom bracket and the linkage carries over the bottom bracket and around 
the uh, the actual seat tube, yep. and then it mounts. So that's actually creating less progressivity. That actually drops the progressive nature of the VPP yep. um, to create more plushness. But um, that's, you know, this setup right now, there's basically still two versions on the road right now. There's yep. your version twos and your version threes. Um, so first one starts above the bottom bracket, connects to a linkage. Then your whole chainstay and seat stay are completely connected together. Yep. And then you have some sort of linkage that goes from the seat stay or the top tube. Yep. To your, it looks uh, like a hanging linkage. Yeah. It's a, it, and it, and it depends that dog bone linkage can be, uh, mounted to the seat stay and go horizontal, or it can be mounted from the top tube and go vertical. So it could be either one and all of their bikes are different. And this is something that's interesting because a lot of people look at the Santa Cruz design from a distance and they might think, Oh, well, it looks like a specialized Which because, it and it, it isn't at all. No. Um, or they might say it looks like the Yeti ASR like yeah. mine and it's not at all. And that, yeah, dog bones, totally different, totally different yeah. design. This is very much, it behaves in many respects a lot like the, you know, the DW links on other bikes. Yeah. So, um, so what's it good at? Uh, it really, the progressive nature of the, of the suspension design inherently is made for really aggressive riding. Yeah. It Bro really likes Joyce, to be pushed. Once again. Um, the one thing I will say is my old Nomad, I, that thing, the faster you rode it, the better it rode. Yeah. That bike would just, I mean, it would go through anything. I mean, they've got Greg Menar on there. He's a hovercraft. The guy just like plows through everything and makes it look effortless. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's it poor at? A pedal bob. Yeah. You know, the the thing that I always noticed is on my Nomad, it had a, what did it have on it initially? It was a float RP23 because it was a 2012. It was yep. an older, and that was, you know, in the in the era when they were finally starting to figure out shocks, but they still weren't the greatest And overall. they've made huge strides since then. They've made huge then. strides since then. Yeah. And this is on a version two, I just noticed that the bike just bounced everywhere. It did not like, and I had to put a Talus fork on it because it did not like sitting at 160 mils of travel. Yeah. It would just, the front end would bounce off the ground on any steep climbs. Yeah, and one thing that I've noticed <clears throat> about them is they they also tend to, so they tend to ride kind of like, they tend to sit high, depending on where you're at in the pedal stroke, sit high, then bob down. But also, when you're just going over bumpy terrain, um, they can be a little um, unsettled when you're going over that like a lot of the time. But the faster you go, yes. the lower it's going to sit in that stroke, the more calm it's going to be a lot of the time. Absolutely. That is totally fair. Yeah. So, um, but the, yeah, they like to be charged. They're, and those bikes are so progressive that they like a really big air volume air mm-hmm. um, can or coil, and they like a really light compression tune typically. Yep. That's, yeah. That would be the best bet for that one. Um, let's, let's move on to, we were going to, well, let's just uh, cover, the, cover the Yeti and then I'll talk about the Canada okay. because that's kind of witchcraft. Yeah, because I don't even know what to do with all of that. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of weird things happening there. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's, we'll cover the Yeti. Then we'll cover the Y. Or yeah, then let's do the Canada. Yeti has their Switch Infinity design. It's a clever design because the rear triangle is 100% solid. It's, yes. it's There are no break points to that rear triangle, right? And, and that's on all of their Switch Infinities as well, not just the six. Yes. And here's the cool, and I know a lot of people are thinking that we're going to you know, throw roses their way on this one, but we're going to be just clear about what it is. So, Very factual. Yes. The, the lower pivot point, it is clever. We have to say this. It is clever. Uh, the lower pivot point is floating. 
And the way that that lower pivot point is floating is that basically, once again, this the rear triangle is all one piece, right? But if you were to look at where the, the, the chain stays get really close to the bottom bracket and then turn upward toward the seat stays, right in that area, there is a linkage point where it connects to the, to the seat tube of the frame. And then that seat tube, or I should say where it is, it's not like hard mounted to the seat tube, but it's actually mounted to a part that actually slides up and down on two little stanchions. Which are essentially little miniature fork stanchions. Exactly. Uh, there is no damping to those. There's no, no anything There's no shock. Like they just slide. That's all they do. It just allows that pivot to move, which is really clever because when you're, once again, we talked about that arc that your wheel makes when it's going up that suspension or going through its travel. Yeah. And this allows it to operate more freely, have less of a hitch where it moves, you know, extends the chain line, then does the opposite. It's more of a smooth, it allows for more of like a linear. It's essentially what it does is it cheats the radius of your, of the actual wheel path arc. So yeah. the wheel path arc on a 27.5 bike from that pivot is essentially going to be a fixed rotation around a circle. Yep. Well, that vertical oscillation of that switch link makes it so that it cheats that radius into a bigger radius. Yep. And makes nice. it a little bit plusher. Yep. And then it's got uh, at the top where the seat stays turned downward toward those chain stays. That's where it mounts to the shock. The shock then goes forward and mounts to the down tube. And it also, it mounts to that shock, but it has a linkage once again at the top that's tied into that seat tube again. Yes. Um, so that's the switch infinity, uh, I guess designed as far as what it is there. Um, it's, it's, pretty progressive at five or sorry, it's pretty linear. Forgive me. Yes. Um, actually I would say very linear. It's only at 5%. Yeah. Um, some people even, uh, in fact, we, a lot of this information, by the way, you can find it on Andres XTR. Uh, that's the, um, that's the YouTube channel. Um, he breaks down, does a really cool job of breaking. He shows kinematics on yeah. everything. It's great. Yeah. It's really cool. And he feels specifically that it's like too linear for an enduro bike. But this is a good example of it doesn't matter if you have a design that a geometry design that's on one side of the coin, you pair it with the shock that's on the other side of the coin and it's effective, right? So in this case, um, it's got 5% progressivity, very linear. And then once again, that's just with the SB6 with their different bikes is going to be different. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. It's very good at absorbing bumps with that that switch infinity allows it to move re- very freely in the beginning like that. It doesn't start out really hard and have like that harsh initial harshness that you have. Yeah. It absorbs a lot of the small bumps and but at the same time the magic of it is it does that while still being a very stable pedaling platform. Yes. Because in most cases what you have is a bike that yeah sure it can absorb bumps but as soon as you put any power into the pedals you're going to be bouncing around. Of course. And this does not do that which is great. Um the thing that it's poor at without proper tuning, and this kind of goes for everything without proper tuning, right? But without proper tuning, it could be easier to bottom out just because it is more linear. Um, and it will squat ever so slightly under braking. Um, that said, those things can be countered for, like we're talking about with everything else. Yeah. Um, smaller volume air can be good on this to get something that's slightly more pro- or slightly more progressive on there to, to counter that linear, um, suspension design. A mid to high compression tune would probably be something that you'd be looking for on this yeah. one. Yeah. So uh, let's Cannondale. So Cannondale's Jekyll, um, and obviously they they are fully redesigning the bike. If you've seen the spy photos from Jerome Clements racing a push style shock, which looks to be um, like a Flodex. Yep. Um, it's essentially what they call a lever arm single link. So it's 
it's a very interesting design because like most things are with Cannondale. Yes. Like most things are. So what it does is it has a single pivot right above the bottom bracket, a little bit rear, you know, rearward of the bottom bracket and seat tube. Yep. And you have a chainstay assembly that runs back and then they put a brake point right, I guess, upward of the brake mount on the seat stay to separate the braking forces to separate your braking forces. Okay. But they put the brake on the the chainstay assembly, not up on the seat stay assembly. So you don't get that torque arm effect on the seat stay. Okay. Then it runs up and you have that really big long seat stay that mounts to a pivot point on that big bar link that goes right in the middle of the down tube. Yes. The dyad used to sit nicely tucked in the middle there, but that's gone. Obviously the dyad had its inherent issues with maintenance and you know it was a it was it was a flawed product. It was a great engineering feat because it was the only shock of its kind that essentially had, was two shocks in one. Yep. Because of the Cannondale attitude adjust system where you had 160 mils of travel and 115 mils of travel in the climb mode, it create, they basically had to do two completely different damper bodies, two completely different oil volume setups, one. and two completely different air setups. Now, crazy. with that air, that's two complete positive air chambers and two complete negative air chambers. So that shock was a it was a design feat like the thing was amazing yeah in, in theory so it's going to be weird to see you know the new version that's to be released you know still um i believe they're going to be re- doing the product announcement right before sea otter so we'll get to see more detail on that then but it looks like the entire suspension geometry has stayed the same interesting which is a which is a fairly linear design okay the shock travels very linearly through its through its travel. Right. Um, I think it's going to be like somewhere in the 10 to 15% progression. Okay. Whereas the trigger was more like 38 to 40%. It gotcha. was a big progression on the trigger, but it's ro- little rocker link setup for the pull shock was totally different. Hmm. I think the trigger is going to be going to something similar to the Jekyll now, but we'll see. Gotcha. Um, but the shock now, it's going to be interesting to see what Fox and Cannondale come up with, with a push shock, being able to still incorporate that attitude adjust dual dampers, dual oil volumes, dual air chambers, dual travel. Mm-hmm. We'll see what they're going to do with that. That'll be cool. So, I mean, there's a lot of black magic, you know, that Cannondale does. And like you often say, they walk 15 miles to do five miles worth of engineering. Yeah. They get to the same place. Their they get to the same place, but they but just spend more time and more effort doing it. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said to that for that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, um, if you look in terms of, you know, I complained last week about lack of innovation that we just have iteration. Yes. And even though once again, they're getting to the same spot, the lengths at which they go to, to do things differently, I I'd say that that's more innovative than iterative. Yeah. I mean, I guess in the end, innovation would be defined by a step forward. So I guess maybe not, but at the same time, it's, they do things differently and they, ex- and they, they you can't say that they're worse. No. Than, than at their competition. And, so. and one thing I will say is that my Cannondale Jekyll, when I race that, yeah. the best at brake jack issues and the most plush mm. pedaling or the most plush downhill. Yeah. And actually one of the better climbing platforms. There we are. I mean, they're good. They're very good. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, the YT Capra, the last one, 
Um, we'll touch on that one. The, the, so this bike is like an outlier, 75% progressivity. Yes. Just like off the charts, super progressive. So right there, you're going to want a large volume air or a coil shock with a low compression tune. Really light compression tune. Yes. Because you've already got so much progression going on with that design. Now the design itself, getting into exactly like how it looks and everything else, it's got a pivot point right above the bottom bracket. Then those those chain stays kind of bend downward. Then they work their way to much like an FSR. They have a link that's just below that position of the actual axle on the, at the rear tire, yeah. right? And then you have the seat stays. They they travel from that little linkage point to the rear axle. Then all the way up to a linkage that's just it's basically a two position or I should say a three position linkage but basically it mounts to a long arm that connects down to a lower part on the down tube and then it connects to the shock the shock just pushes it's it's horizontal more or less on yeah. that bike um <clears throat> this bike is and this is interesting so we have Brian Kennedy on here BKXC from YouTube check yeah. out his channel um, and he rode the Capra and I remember him. So he rode it on um, fairly buff trails. Right. Yeah. And I remember him saying, uh, that he just kind of like, eh, it did okay. Yeah. And this bike really wants to be pushed. It has to be pushed. It has to, to, feel, to feel anything on that bike. You have to put it at its limits. Yeah. It's, pro- it's progressive. So it's not like you're just blowing through something and it's like a worn out Cadillac that'll just go over everything. It's no, it's progressive, but at the same time, to really use all that travel, you need to make that thing go through some stuff. There's a lot of, there's a big reason why you see a lot of those bikes up at North star and mammoth, you know, every weekend all summer long. Yep. Cause they are a big hit bike. Yep. They're made for it. I mean, it makes, I, I'm sure that they didn't design this bike around cam zinc. Right. I mean, like I think marketing would have us believe that that's always the case, right? They yeah. like design the bike specifically for the rider, but it's a good pairing. Yeah. Oh, really it's a good pairing. Absolutely. You know, uh, for those type of riders that really want to go big, the Capra's really good at that. Um, so yeah, I guess that covers pretty much everything. The last thing I wanted to cover was a single pivot design like my ASR. It's something that you see less commonly now, and there are modified single pivots. So, Which technically the Cannondales, as I discussed, they are a modified single pivot. They're what they call a lever arm single pivot. Yeah, even something, and the one <clears throat> we didn't cover in here is uh, like Evil's bikes. The, the Delta Link. The Delta Link. Dave's extra legitimate travel apparatus. <laughs> That's just a pretty sweet name. And that's Dave Weagle as well. That's yes. That's another Dave Weagle design. He's smart. He designs a lot of suspension. He does. Um, so the there are a lot of different bikes I'm sure that we haven't covered, and we apologize for that. But, but we only have an hour, folks. Yes, and we actually are already over that hour. No. Um, but one thing that I wanted to cover really quick is some suspension designs you'll see, like the rear triangle does not actually make a complete triangle. It'll look more like a C or something like that. Yeah. And on that C, like on my Yeti ASR, for example, it has it's mounted to the frame at the bottom there. Um, that's its pivot point right by the bottom bracket. But then it comes back up around and has a linkage point, like a kind of like a dog bone a dog that's bone. hanging from the frame, yeah. and then it connects. But that rear triangle is actually designed to flex. Yes. And that's why it needs to be a carbon rear end. Not all of them, though. That's do true, that. though, because some of them some yeah. of them don't flex. But yes, like your Yeti ASR, and the ASR has always been this way. Yep, definitely does flex. Yeah, and the, that's the really cool thing about it is 
it takes that design and it actually does make it a little bit more progressive with that with that flex too, yes. which is really um, nice. Cannondale triggers, the carbon triggers in 2014 and 15, they had no pivot points, but the seat stay did flex against the chain stay. And we know that because you saw me break one. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just a, a quick note on that, um, older Cannondale scalpels. Did you yep. know that the lower pivot point was all in carbon flex at the bottom bracket. There was no actual pivot point. That's why those bikes weighed 18 and a half pounds as a full suspension XC bike. There was no bearing or Mm. pivot point in the bottom bracket area at all. That's the, so that's the, and that's the thing that you can do cleverly with carbon that you can't do with a lot of other materials. You can really design that to flex intentionally in a very specific way. Yep. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, let's close it out with our tips. Tips. You don't care they're counting on your tips to live? All right. Uh, I, today, uh, I was, I was, I'm, I'm sick right now. Um, and I was at home trying to work through things and get all the work done that I still needed to get done. And I was talking to the guys from Quare, C-U-O-R-E. Um, they support disclaimer. They support me personally. Uh, they provide me with kit every year, but I actually sought them out. So I, I'm a very fussy person with kit with a lot of things. I guess I'm just a fussy person. Except for your hair today. Usually your hair is so primped and perfect and today it just looks haggard. But doesn't it have kind of like a look like it's almost intentional? No. Oh, dang it. It looks like a pigeon tried to nest in your head. Dang it, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I it's was okay. Try- I was trying to go for a look. Okay. Um, but anyways, uh, I am very fussy with kit, especially. I have really, I've talked about this, I think, before, but if I were to scratch my forehead right now, it would stay red for an hour or two. I just have really irritable said skin. He's a delicate flower. Yeah, I am a delicate flower. And I sought these guys out because after using... And I, I I don't say their name to disparage them, but I say their name to just provide context. Um, we used Castelli stuff for a long time, and Castelli is oftentimes considered kind of like the the best of the best. Um, you know, it's got kind of a reputation as like a really high end Italian brand, and the stuff was terrible. They're and just bread and butter stuff, honestly. Sorry for TMI, but <clears throat> I was it was like somebody I like I like sat on a belt sander. It was just terrible. Um, really uncomfortable all the time after wearing their stuff. It was like great the first week, two weeks. And then I felt like the chamois would compress. Then I felt like the fabrics would stretch and it would let the chamois move all over. So I was looking for a new brand and I went to Quare. Liked, I had them send me some fit kits, which you can do that, by the way. You can talk to these brands a lot of the time and they can, they can send you fit kits, which is yeah. pretty cool. Um, so they were kind enough to send me some. I tried it on and I loved it. And I've been on their stuff for like three years now. Um, Disclaimer, last year I did get this stuff for free, but I didn't get it before then and was happy to pay for it. And if they said no more free stuff, I don't care. I would still pay for it. Exactly. It's darn good kit. Um, And they do custom stuff. And my kit that I've had for a year now doesn't look a day old. Yeah. It is the blacks are still black. They're not purple or brown or red. Um, the fabric hasn't stretched at all, which is awesome. The chamois is still exactly the same as it was. And I know that because I still have a set in, in the packaging and I compared the chamois compared to the stuff I've been wearing for a year and that, yeah, no difference whatsoever. So they do really cool stuff and they even can like, they're very good on color. There's, I may be breaking some or melting some minds here, but maybe not too. The majority of all cycling apparel is made at a single factory and yeah. that factory happens to be one that Quare manages and runs. So they really have seen everything. They know what they're doing and they 
brought about this brand just to make a really high end, nice brand. And it is so good. So that's what I would recommend. And I promise you that this is not a paid endorsement. So I was just talking to them today and I was like, man, I should talk about that on the podcast because it's something, it would be a tip that I would like to do. So there you go. Yep. Your tip. So on the heels of LED lighting. Yes. I'm going to go off of bikes and onto cars for a minute because a lot of mountain bikers drive Toyotas. They drive Tacomas and 4Runners and yeah, a lot true. of them. So. That's true. In fact, I think I saw that question on Pink Bike once. It was like, what vehicle do you drive? The overwhelming favorite was a Toyota Tacoma of or course. 4Runner. Yeah, that absolutely. Common. Yeah. Um, so Casey Highlights has been a name in lighting technology um, for 47 years now. Like K-C. C and then Highlights, H-I-L-I-T-E-S. Yep. So they recently came out with their uh, Gravity LED products. And they actually have uh, their Gravity LED fog lights that are direct swap in replacements for they have uh, for Jeep JKs they have a universal kit that's a four inch fog light and then they also have them for the Tacoma. Mm-hmm. Now I had to modify the bracket slightly to fit my Forerunner, but they are coming out with a Forerunner specific bracket. Nice. And so, are they working with you on that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <clears throat> Check you out. So I've just been I'm actually taking a special interest class right now on optics, and so it's something that's really interesting to me. And Casey does such a great job of their optics. And one of the things that I was always unimpressed with is any factory fog light is terrible on any vehicle. Yeah. You can put brighter lights, you can put higher wattage lights, but then you just get glare and all kinds of issues. So I got these Casey highlights. They retail for about 300 bucks. You can get them on Amazon for 259 and it's complete kit mounting brackets, everything fully adjustable and it bolts right in and it's great. Yeah. Um, the lighting output is phenomenal. Instead of just doing like the typical brosif, you know, light bars everywhere yeah. where they're just direct facing yeah. your LEDs in a little refractor bowl. Mountain bikers could use less light bars. Yeah. I mean less the world the world could use less light bars. It could. Yeah. <laughs> and the point is you can't control lights as well if you direct face an LED out into your projector bowl. Mm-hmm. So you're losing, you know, a lot of these light bar companies advertise, oh, we, you know, we have 5 million lumens of output. That's being very sarcastic, of course. Right. But we put, say, 50,000 lumens of output, you know, on yeah. the road. Well, sure, the LEDs are putting that many lumens. If the LED at, you know, a certain temperature is putting 110 lumens per watt and they're Get all three deep. watt LEDs, we can just do simple multiplication and figure out how many raw lumens of output are. Raw lumens don't equate to what they call usable light. Right. Or they could just be lighting. Th- they could just be throwing the light anywhere. Yeah. It could be glaring. It could be going, you know, off into space. Yeah. So the big thing is focusing your light. So what these gravity LED lights do is they turn the LEDs around and they actually fire into a standard like reflector like bowl. Yeah. And then it allows KC to take all of that light, focus it exactly where they want, and create the exact beam pattern they want. Even 5D, that's the new light bar technology, is what they call 5D optics, Yeah, still scatters light like crazy. Yeah. And still doesn't put usable light on the trail. So these lights are phenomenal. Um, I love them. I paid retail for them, and I'm endorsing their product right now. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to put their little, um, they've got their their Pro 6 gravity LEDs yeah. that come with this new infinity ring, and it's kind of like a five, six inch you know, um, off-road light light bar in a sense. Right. I'm putting one of those on the forerunner. 
Nice. It's a thousand dollar unit. And then I'm going to have to custom make my own brackets to mount it. But I want that light on there because I know with, you know, they're 20 Watts a piece. It's a lot less wattage than any light bar of the same size and actually a lot better optics. There we are. So I, you guys should check them out. Caseyhighlights.com. Look at their gravity series stuff. They're phenomenal lights and we all drive Tacomas and Forerunners, so everybody should buy them. Yeah. And they're exactly. available in, in amber, and I prefer amber fog lights as well, because it's a longer wavelength, so yeah. you get basically the angle of incidence off of any sort it's of light pollution. It cuts through fog better. It cuts through fog better, cuts through rain better, so you actually get more usable light. Cuts through the dust when, you're, when your homies throw in brodies. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, cool. I like it. Making our rides better on um, cars and bikes. Good yep, stuff. Absolutely. Hopefully that suspension does, uh, suspension talk uh, wasn't too deep for y'all. Um, not not speaking to anything other than the fact that sometimes we get too nerdy, right? But yeah. hopefully it was easy to follow. That's kind of a visual thing, and we did it via the you know medium of, of audio, which can be tricky, but... Hopefully it made sense. If not, um, or if you have any questions for us, like the questions we talked about earlier, you can submit them to us at mtbpodcast.com. Uh, you can go on there, submit questions, listen to the latest episode, and please review and share this podcast with your friends. We're getting a ton more reviews. Keep it going, and uh, we're gathering our swag together to do some type of a giveaway soon. So uh, we'll make that happen. So please review, please share. Um, I think we're going to involve sharing the podcast somehow in those reviews. So please start doing it now. So then we can uh, consider that at another point. And yeah, I guess we'll talk to them next week, right? We will. Cool. Thanks everybody. Have a nice day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.